Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Every day we are inundated with information and it can be hard to figure out what's true and what isn't. And amid the clutter, a skepticism of science has emerged. Disinformation and misinformation can be damaging to communities. You don't have to look back very far to see how climate change deniers and anti-vaccine movements have tried to impact policies meant to protect people. What can be done to diminish fake science? Coming up where we live, we talk about the role of science education, especially for students to understand how science works. Later, Mark Rudy, an educator with Tallinn Public Schools and the Connecticut Science Teachers Association, joins us. My first guest is a chemistry professor at Connecticut College in New London. Mark Zimmer has written several books. His latest is for high schoolers called Science and the Skeptic. The book gives readers basic skills to help them fight disinformation. Mark Zimmer joins us on Zoom. Mark, welcome back to the show. Thank you for the introduction and thank you for having me here. I mentioned, Mark, that you're the author of several books. This particular one, Science and the Skeptic, was written for a younger audience. So tell us why this is so important, and when did you begin writing it? So I'm a computational chemist. I use computers to calculate the shapes and structures of proteins, particularly proteins that give off light that are found in jellyfish and in um, corals. And they can be used to illuminate diseases and understand diseases. And in order to do this, I have to keep up with all the science and medical literature. It's a full-time job. I also teach chemistry and I write these science books. And yet I find myself probably once or twice a month thinking, is this real? Is this fake? Is it just somebody's opinion? And so before COVID, a couple of years before COVID, I started thinking to myself, whoa, what about poor young adults who you know, haven't been studying science as much as I have, who aren't really fully matured science nerds yet? How can they distinguish between fact and fiction? And so I thought it would be really great to, to write a book that's aimed at the high school library market um, that has maybe some rules that can help you distinguish fact from fiction when it comes to particularly scientific facts. Right. It's, it's good to know uh, the basis of why you wanted to write this for young people. But something that stood out to us is, you know, this is the kind of information that the general public needs, especially after two years in a pandemic, uh, Mark, uh, how we've seen uh, people uh, wanting more information on a virus that was evolving. And there was a lot of pressure on scientists to communicate what was known about SARS-CoV-2. And so I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about that. Yeah. So, I mean, the big problem with SARS-CoV-2 was it was a virus that we hadn't seen before. So it was completely new. So there was no information about it. And 
it was a pressing subject to talk about. And so newspapers and TV and social media all wanted to know what was going on. And the way science is done, um, we're, 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 scientists are naturally careful about making statements that they're not quite sure about. And so I think what happened a lot in the beginning of the COVID pandemic was especially TV news and talk show hosts would go to people who were willing to talk about COVID. And often that wasn't the epidemiologists and virologists. Instead, it was white men in business suits, manager types, economists who were running programs to try and model COVID. And so what happened was a lot of those predictions that started off early on um, turned out not to be true. And so that resulted in a bit of a loss in sort of status of science, I think, as people sort of realized, oh, wow, you know, science doesn't always know exactly what's going on. Um, so I think that's happened. Then with vaccines coming out really quick, faster than anybody had hoped for, that reinstated the view that, well, maybe science isn't so bad. And 3M, it's a company that makes the little yellow um, post-it notes. Every year they have a um, re survey called the state of science. And one of the things they found out was that 90% of the people they surveyed, and this is internationally, trust science, which is higher than it's ever been before. So one of the things that COVID has done is people have really got quite some trust in science itself. Trust in scientists is a little lower at 86%. And then very telling is trust in science that you read about in social media is down at 44%. So I, I think those numbers are, are really telling and sort of tell us a little bit about how how we have to be careful of facts that come on social media where there's no editor who checks whether something's true, where typically misinformation or disinformation spreads a lot faster than factual information, just because we're all interested in things that are unique. Right. And so if we see something we haven't seen before, we're more likely to, to spread that on. Mm -hmm. Now we'll get into more of uh, you know, your tips on, uh, again, figuring out what is uh, fact from fiction. Throughout your book, Science and the Skeptic, you have 20 rules. And the first uh, part really focuses on when we think about you know where um, information is reliable and also when we think about the way um, uh, science evolves, the importance of peer-reviewed studies. So can you talk about that, Mark? Yes. So the way science works is I, I'll take myself for an example. I come up with an idea uh, with some students. We do a bunch of calculations or experiments. Then when we think we have enough to tell a bit of a story, we write it up as a paper. We send it to a journal and there are many, many journals. Um, and we choose a journal that has got sort of the status of, if we think it's an excellent best paper we've ever written, it'll go to nature or science, um, or it'll go to a chemical, chemistry journal if it's not quite up to that standard. 
an editor reads the abstract and decides, yeah, this is the kind of paper that I'd like to see in the journal, and then sends the paper to typically three reviewers who have expert knowledge in the field. Now, this was a massive problem with COVID because everybody suddenly was doing research in COVID and there weren't enough people who could do this peer review. The peer reviewers then have to read the paper and first of all, decide whether it is factually correct and then does it fit in the journal that you want to publish it in. And then once it's gone through that, then the editor looks at what the peer reviewers say. They typically will say, yeah, this looks good, but we would like a little extra work on this just to show this one point and prove it, make sure that that's really real. And then it gets published. So if something's published in a peer-reviewed article, it's not infallible, but it's a good sign that you know, scientists have really done the work and other scientists have checked the work. Now, there is a problem there. These journals called predatory journals where scientists pay money and they publish the work and it looks like a peer-reviewed journal, but there hasn't been any peer review. It's just published as is. And people will do that to sort of prove that some supplement that they're selling actually works when it doesn't, or just um, a fossil fuel industry will publish a paper every now and again saying that climate change isn't real but it isn't peer-reviewed. So one of the first things one has to establish is, is this a peer-reviewed journal or not? And you can do that online. There are a bunch of uh, search engines will, that will tell you whether something's peer-reviewed or not. Mm. Yeah, that was my next question, uh, given that uh, there are so many uh, places uh, to find information online. You mentioned some of the most prestigious journals, but there is a site that can help people uh, discern uh, which journals uh, are more reliable, Mark. Um, so, yes, one, one can look at just for list of predatory journals. And then if you find your journal in that list, then you know, oh boy, you know, this, this is not legitimate science. You're hearing Mark Zimmer here on Where We Live. He's a Connecticut College chemistry professor and author of Science and the Skeptic. It's a book that includes 20 rules for young people. It also relates to the general public, how to distinguish fake science from the real deal. You can join our conversation and find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. And so in recent years, uh, we, we hear about misinformation and disinformation and how that spreads online, Mark. But you also go into the origins of fake science science and how we can learn from you know what happened in years past and how it relates to today. Can you give us an example? You wrote about tobacco as an example. Yeah, so tobacco is really fascinating because it has a very old history. We don't realize this, but in 1761, a doctor named John Hill um, wrote a paper saying that chewing tobacco causes tumors in the mouth. And this was the first time that anybody had ever shown that a particular food or anything causes a cancer. So they showed a link between one and the other. Um, but nothing really much happened. More and more people did research. More and more people showed that there was indeed a link. 
five years later, Percival Potts did similar research and showed that chimney sweeps got cancer in their scrotal areas from all the coal dust that got caught between the legs and stayed there and that this caused cancer. Well, it took less than 20 years before a whole bunch of chimney sweep um, acts were passed in Britain. And the whole chimney sweep industry was revolutionized and caused a dramatic drop in scrotal cancer. Whereas in tobacco, as we pretty much all know, um, in the 1950s, 1960s, there were still many, many people saying that tobacco doesn't cause cancer. In fact, the largest advertisement um, push ever done was one by the tobacco industry, basically trying to show that the science was inconclusive. And so this is, again, a problem with science. You can think of science, the process of doing science as building puzzles, where each puzzle piece is some information like a peer-reviewed paper. And as you put the puzzle together, you start knowing more and more about what's going on. Well, at the end, there are a couple of holes that you haven't filled yet. And that's sort of the stage that the tobacco um, causing cancer puzzle was like in the 60s and early 70s. But everybody sort of could see, oh, yeah, there's no doubt this is the big picture. And yet uh, the advertising agencies and the lobbyists were saying, you know, it's not 100% proof this puzzle isn't quite done. Scientists don't quite know what's happening here. And one other thing that they did very, very cleverly was get this idea um, amongst the media that there always has to be a balanced representation. So if you have somebody on TV talking about tobacco causing cancer, then you also have to have somebody from the other side showing that tobacco doesn't cause cancer, even though at the time over 99% of all medical doctors said that um, tobacco caused cancer, they always had to be somebody else presenting this balance, what we now call false balance. And so today we all know that tobacco causes cancer, but those techniques are still around. So the fossil fuel industry uses it with denying climate change. And they always ask for this fine, false balance. So if somebody is interviewed about their new research showing that the weather patterns are changing because of climate change, then there has to be somebody who says exactly the opposite, even though we know that's got no scientific backing. So yeah, so tobacco was pretty interesting historically. Again, you're hearing Mark Zimmer here on Where We Live, Connecticut College chemistry professor and author of the book we're talking about today, Science and the Skeptic, Discerning Fact from Fiction. We're going to hear more tips and tricks from Zimmer after the break about how to distinguish what's real from fake science. Now, what questions do you have? You can join us. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. You're 
You're listening to Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Science helps us understand the natural world by interpreting results of experiments to build knowledge. Yet how much of the public understands how science works and the ways to distinguish real science from made-up science? That's the stuff that's so often shared on social media. In his book, Science and the Skeptic, Connecticut College chemistry professor Mark Zimmer gives tips to young people to help them understand how science works and the ways they can discern fact from fiction. These skills are needed now more than ever. As Zimmer writes, research has shown people are more likely to repeat or share fake science they see on social media than actual facts. And this tendency relates to the biases people have, whether responding to negative information, sensational news, or sharing information that reaffirms their beliefs even if they aren't true. Mark Zimmer is with us on Zoom. Earlier we talked about uh, the origins of fake science, and you had explained, Mark, that you know, scientists had long reached consensus about the uh, link between tobacco and cancer, but it was uh, uh, the vested interests uh, that um, used uh, even a little bit of uncertainty uh, to uh, cause, uh, you know, again, uh, policies uh, to not be passed uh, that would curb uh, the sale of tobacco and the real impacts on on consumers. And I'm wondering when we think about how kids uh, may not be learning about this in the classroom, but this is still a, a really critical piece when we think about interpreting information. Yeah, that I guess is. Um Maybe a better question for the next guest who has more in, um, dealing with the curriculum. But we don't have anything like this in most curricula right now, where students are, are taught how to be critical without being cynical. I think, I think that's really important, too, that they don't lose the wonder of science, but at the same time, learn how to look at science, see if it's real, see if it's not real, see why somebody might be making up something. So um, you use both terms misinformation and disinformation. So misinformation is information that was accidentally um, spread and that contains some mistakes in them. So this is where somebody you know, just copies down something wrong or does something wrong and then because people see it and it's different to everything else they've seen before, it gets spread pretty quickly. And then on the far side of that is disinformation, where somebody um, on purpose sets out something that's false, where they know it's false. This might be for political reasons or for economic reasons. I think maybe the most interesting to me re uh, case is in the anti-vaccine debate. So in 2016, um, it turns out that if you looked at all the social media tweets that were on the extremes of the anti-vaccine debate, so on the pro side, people were saying, you know, you've got to vaccinate your children. It's immoral if you don't. They'll die if you do, if you don't vaccinate them. And on the other side, people saying you can't vaccinate your children, they'll get become autistic and it's very very dangerous it turns out that the vast majority of these tweets came from the same source and that source uh, was presumably from uh, the russian intelligence community and all they wanted to do was stir up um, discontent between the two groups and push the two groups even further apart and so i think it's really important that students do learn that 
that's one of the reasons why I want this to be a, a high school or wanted this to be a high school library book so that students can critically um, look at something on the internet and decide, yeah, is this real? This is not real. Why would somebody be wanting to do that? And I think in the middle of misinformation is um, something where people want to believe it's real and they haven't quite got the proof yet, but because they want to believe it so much, they're ready to believe it and they'll spread it. And so we get something that's sort of halfway between misinformation and disinformation, which is also very, very common. We know the pandemic is not over. And when we talk about a COVID misinformation, you know, how can uh, readers of your book, especially young people, navigate, uh, you know, again, what misinformation and disinformation is? What's the starting point, Mark? Well, I think the starting point is always to find um, scientists whose expertise is in the area of the information. So, and um, see what they say. So obviously, uh, I think even though the CDC has, hasn't got such a great reputation right now, um, the CDC is still a fairly reliable source to look at. Um, Peer-reviewed papers obviously are, are very reliable as well. Uh, and then if, if you see somebody um, on TV, and you can see at the bottom, it says sort of virologists and so um, And it seems to make sense. And a week later or two weeks later, it still makes sense. Then the next time you, you hear that person talk, then you can trust them a bit more. So it's also a long-term process where you sort of hone your skills to find out who's telling the truth. Um, there's a really fascinating graph that... Um, is on the internet as well that shows all the different um, news outlets and how much of their news is fact and how much is opinion. So you can see, for example, that both um, CNN and Fox News don't do quite that well, that a lot of the material that they sort of present as fact is in fact only opinion that hasn't been verified. And so I, I think a, a very interesting possible solution for all of this is that artificial intelligence programs, so the very same programs that bundle people um, with similar ideas together in what we call echo chambers, that these artificial intelligence programs are quite capable of figuring out whether something is real or not. And so we could have a case where Twitter decides and Facebook decides, okay, we'll give each post a score um, between zero and 10. And if it's a 10, you know it's fact, it's been established. If it's zero, you know it's fake. If it's five, um, yeah, we're, we're sort of in this nebulous zone. So when you read something, um, we could get to the stage in a couple of years where we actually have something that's telling us how true it is. But whether that it's possible, but whether Twitter and Facebook will do that is another question. You mentioned AI. When we think about AI moderation on social media, it's also been shown to have ingrained biases. Is that a concern, Mark? Oh, definitely. So if 
I do a, a search on my computer, um, that search will order the hits that I get um, with the knowledge of other searches I've done and even the knowledge of things that I follow on Twitter. So it'll go across um, different apps and uh, it'll decide, okay, well, Mark has been interested in this sort of stuff and this is the sort of stuff that he's interested in. So this is what we'll put on the top. And so I get the, whenever I look for something, I tend to get things that already agree with my opinions. And so I, I don't really see the opposing view. And if my opinions have to be wrong about something, then it just gets reinforced. So um, somebody who typically looks at things that are very conservative is likely to have appear higher up in their searches, things that are saying that climate change is not real. Whereas if there's somebody who leans more liberal, they're more likely, if they're searching for something about genetically modified organisms, they're more likely to find out that genetically modified organisms are harmful, even though most of the science shows they aren't. So yeah, the, the, these search engines that we use um, do have ingrained biases that reflect what we're looking for. You mentioned climate change, and we think about how the public's consensus around climate change um, has evolved in recent years. So how does that differ from this ongoing controversy around um, COVID? So in some ways, um, it, they don't differ, right? Because COVID and climate change um, both have been politicized. But in other ways, uh, it, it's very different because COVID is very, very new, um, just first found in the end of 2019, whereas um, climate change, we've known that climate change has been around uh, for a couple of hundred years. And um, it, it, we're pretty much sure about everything about climate change, um, just not how to stop it. Um, but for COVID, there's a lot of uncertainty still. So that's one of the big difficulties. Um, some people say that climate change is a bit like um, this sort of fable where the frog is in a pot and the water is getting hotter and hotter. And as it gets hotter, the frog doesn't jump out, which, by the way, is fake. Um, if you actually put a frog in hot water and you started increasing the temperature of the water, at some point that frog will jump out. It won't stay there until it's boiled. Um, but that's what climate change is. It's, it's very difficult. Something really um, traumatic has to happen before everybody decides, okay, with climate change, we have to now do something about the um, carbon dioxide and methane gases that we're emitting. Mm -hmm. uh, with COVID, it's a little bit easier because by now most of us already know somebody who has got COVID. Um, and with COVID, the, and the, the way of stopping the COVID outbreaks is obviously wearing a mask, uh, which is uncomfortable, but it, it's not life-changing. Whereas probably to prevent climate change and to stop climate change, we're going to have to change the way we live. There will be less flying, less driving cars, less driving, eating um, meat. So um, that's going to be a lot harder. So um, 
you know, there, there are similarities between the two uh, and the differences between the two. Um, one big similarity is for neither of them, is it very easy as an individual to see how what you're doing is helping? Right, so whether you see, you put a mask on, you don't get sick. Well, if I didn't have the mask on, would I have got sick? You don't know. And the same with driving a, a big gas guzzling car or a small car. You can't see your own contribution. It would be so much easier if climate change gases, if carbon dioxide or methane were dark um, gases, so we could actually see them being emitted. Right. But you know, earlier, earlier, Mark, you talked a lot about uh, trust and uh, figuring out what is truth from fiction. But when we get to the to the heart of the matter, you know, there is this misperception from the public that science is going to be a hundred percent certain. That's not how science works. Yeah, I, I, I think the public often thinks of science like math, like simple algebra, right? Where you've got uh, 10 plus 5 is 15, and that's it. That's always the way it is. Um, but in science, uh, it, it's, we start off knowing a little bit, then we do experiments to see if that's correct. Um, then we know a bit more, we do some more experiments. And as we do more and more, we get to know more and more. But very typically, even the experiments we do um, can't tell us, you know, 100% certain what's happening. So in science, error bars, the, the, the amount of error associated with our findings are incredibly important. And so where there's zero error bar between uh, 10 plus 5 equals 15, in, in pretty much all the experiments we do, uh, we're not exactly 100% sure. We're just mostly sure. And I think that's one of the reasons why you find scientists being much more careful about predicting what's going to happen and about what exactly what they know. Also, science is often, I mean, ultimately, it all comes down, biology and medicine comes down to atoms and what atoms are doing. And these are, of course, infinitely, not infinitely, but nearly infinitely small um, atoms coming together to make molecules that we can't see and we, it's very, very difficult for us to measure them. So um, we, we're never 100% sure about what we're seeing. I've been talking with Mark Zimmer, Connecticut College chemistry professor and author of the new book, Science and the Skeptic. It includes 20 rules to distinguish fake science from the real deal. We actually have that on our website, ctpublic.org slash where we live. Mark, a pleasure to hear from you. Thanks for writing this book. It's so important to have a great science communicators uh, to help the public understand science. Well, thanks so much for having me on the program, for listening to me. This is where we live on Connecticut Public. Coming up, we're going to learn how local science teachers and public schools educate students about science, including how to think critically about what they see and hear. First, it's Connecticut Public's fall membership campaign. Think about all the different topics and people you hear on where we live each day. We know you value this information because you're listening right now, but if you have yet to support Connecticut Public with a pledge, what are you waiting for? Here are two of my colleagues to tell you how. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. 
ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. You're listening to Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. Earlier, we heard from Connecticut College Professor Mark Zimmer about his book for high schoolers, Science and the Skeptic, to help young people discern fact from fiction when it comes to science. We wanted to learn more about the conversations happening in local science classrooms. Joining us now on Zoom is Mark Rudy, Curriculum Supervisor of Science for Tolland Public Schools, and he's the Tolland County Director of the Connecticut Science Teachers Association. Mark, welcome to our show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So briefly, can you tell us about the association and how it supports teachers? Uh, sure. The Connecticut Science Teachers Association has been around uh, for a long time, um, always endeavoring to provide teachers with uh, information about new practices um, and the best way to, to educate students in the classroom. Um, our role has shifted pretty significantly with the new standards that have come uh, because the approach to science has shifted. Um, so now most of us remember being in the classroom, in the science classroom, and we had a lot to memorize and lots of things to know. And it's much more of a focus on uh, on skills and, and on that critical thinking piece uh, that Dr. Zimmer is really talking about. Um, and so now we focus more of our efforts on helping teachers to think through uh, those kinds of shifts and how to operationalize that in the classroom. Um, so we've even shifted our um, our PD offerings to be much uh, smaller and and more focused and really, again, focused on what teachers can do in their classrooms so that they walk away with uh, with something that they can do and try. We heard there's a long history of pseudoscience uh, that Mark Zimmer uh, laid out as well as in his book. And so as a science teacher, you know, how do you treat these topics uh, like COVID, uh, like climate change in the classroom to explain how science works and to get students to think about this critically? Yeah, this, um, it's definitely not a new issue. Um, even under the prior Connecticut standards, uh, the CAP standards, the, this, um, the concept of pseudoscience, the concept of, of thinking critically about what we hear in the media uh, and, and from anybody that we talk to related to science has long been a focus of what we do. Um, you know, I was in the classroom for 13 years in, in Manchester, and, and that was one of the key goals for us. We talked about the nature of science. We talked about uh, pseudoscience and, and being critical. I think he nailed uh, the, the concept of being critical without being cynical. So getting kids to think about what they're hearing and not just accept, you know, carte blanche to ask questions uh, and, and verify what they're hearing. Um, you know, I remember uh, I used to use a particular example. Uh, we're, we've always been bombarded on the news with um, studies and things, especially when it comes to, to health. And, you know, this causes cancer today, but tomorrow drinking wine is good for your health. Um, so there was one particular study um, that said, uh, the headline was, um, 
chocolate causes cancer, which of course is, that's gotta be one of the worst things in the world. I, I don't know how to live a life without eating chocolate. So uh, I immediately started asking questions, but when you listen to the rest of that story, uh, the, the study was done with rats, which is certainly comparable, but still not humans. And they were feeding those rats two pounds of chocolate a day. I don't know as a human being that I could eat two pounds of chocolate a day. Um, so for a rat to do that, uh, there's no doubt that there are going to be significantly uh, terrible consequences to that. And so really thinking through the application of that study to real life uh, and how it actually affects me uh, was a key thing to, to really talk to students about. And so we, we have always focused on getting kids to, you know, hear what's being said, um, but then start asking questions uh, and verify that before you go too far down the road of, of um, spreading that information. Yeah, uh, Mark Zimmer brought that up in his book, uh, where uh, sometimes science uh, is exaggerated, uh, depending on who is interpreting that particular study, maybe they misinterpret the abstract, and then it's reported in a way that is not uh, factual. So that could be problematic. But when you when you think about some of the tough questions that you may get from students in the classroom, can you give us some examples? How are teachers prepared to answer them, Mark? Um, I think we always will default to um, just trying to stick to the facts. Um, you know, w when kids are asking about COVID um, and when they're asking about climate change, I mean, again, there is, as he mentioned, a difference in terms of uh, the, the information about climate change being around for much longer at this point, and there's much more consensus due to that fact. Uh, and COVID is something that's affecting us on a much um, more current and, and um, smaller scale, so to speak, um, although Climate change is certainly going to be more dramatic in the long run, I think. Um, but all of this, uh, what we try to do is, is really just focus on providing students with information. Um, my goal was always and is always to make sure kids have the information that they need uh, in order to make uh, intelligent decisions. And then beyond that, again, the major shift um, with the new uh, next generation science standards and the approach that we take, um, it focuses now on skills and, and those skills have expanded. Um, under the old standards, it was about uh, the scientific method, which is great, but that's not the only way science is done. Um, and there's much more of a focus now on engaging in argument from evidence, on obtaining and evaluating information that, that you receive, um, on asking questions. Uh, so we're trying to provide students the ability to think for themselves, quite frankly, um, and and Ideally, I want to teach myself out of a job so that they, um, they have the ability to, to take in the information. Um, I'm, I'm not going to try to sway their thinking one way or the other. Um, I also very much think that we have to take the word believe, so to speak, out of the conversation about science. Science is taking a look at the facts as they stand uh, and, and understanding what it is that they can and cannot tell us at that given time. Um, it's not about, in my opinion, believing science. Right. I was thinking about even the discussions over vaccines in recent years. I think there's a line that you use. It's not new. It's new to you. Thinking about how the general mm -hmm. public may not even understand vaccine science. And so, again, thinking about what the facts are uh, as the students hear, um, you know, if a vaccine is effective or not. Yeah. And it's it's so important, too, to, to layer that. Um, I always loved being a biology teacher because it's really you know learning about yourself. So not only are you teaching about the vaccine itself, but you're also you need to provide some information about how viruses work uh, and how they change over time and why it is that we have to have boosters and, uh, you know, a flu shot every year and why the flu shot works some years and not other years um, and an understanding what those vaccines are doing with your immune system. 
because we understand how the immune system works, we can then, you know, develop a vaccine to an essentially manipulate that immune system in order to respond without the actual um, pathogen being in your system. So that when you do get the real thing, you've already equipped yourself, you're ready to go. Um, and all of that comes uh, in, in that conversation. So it's, it's um, really about helping kids to understand themselves as well. You mentioned uh, the the standards. This is the next generation science standard. And so can you uh, maybe mention a little bit more, explain, you know, this formalized approach and, and how it's been involved, evolving, Mark? Absolutely. Um, so the standards themselves come from a book uh, called The Framework for Science Education, which was published back in 2011, um, which really changed our entire thinking uh, about science education. Um, and, it, and it's uh, an important piece of work because it's informed by a lot of the most current research in um, education, in child development, um, in neurological development. And so there's been a lot of shifts, and not just in science, across education in general, uh, because of that research. So this particular shift, um, you know, informed science education. That turned into the Next Generation Science Standards, which were published a couple of years later in 2013, uh, that Connecticut adopted in 2015. So that shift is really about um, honoring the fact that there are ways to get the stuff, so to speak, the information uh, that's out there for science. These search engines, you can pretty much search anything if you're if you're good at that. Um, that it's more about understanding how science is done uh, and how we obtain this information and how we verify this information and how, as we're talking about today, how we discern what's legitimate information, what's valid information versus something maybe that is either misinformation or, or something that's still being uh, vetted and still being determined to be uh, legitimate or not. Uh, and so the next generation science standards um, use what are called performance expectations. And these incorporate the disciplinary ideas that we've all learned about and that we had to memorize when we went through school, but it also layers in uh, what are known as the science practices uh, and cross-cutting concepts, which are sort of those big ideas that cut across all areas of science, no matter what you're talking about. We can talk about patterns and data. We can talk about um, these things, and that helps to create a bigger picture uh, of science. Thank you. Mark Rudy, again from Tallinn Public Schools. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today's show, produced by Katie Pellico and Michaela Savitt. It's Connecticut Public's fall membership campaign. Here are two of my colleagues to tell you how to support the station.